A warm servus from Munich and welcome everyone to the Hightech Ventures podcast. Our mission at Hightech Ventures is to help turn science into a triple P dividend. After decades of focus on purely digital innovations, the wave of science-backed ventures is inevitably coming. And in order to tackle many of the world's most pressing challenges, these high-tech innovations are also highly needed. The Hightech Ventures podcast gives you the inside look at what it takes to create successful science-backed ventures. We truly want to understand the entire process from lab to IPO and hone in on the people involved, entrepreneurs, tech transfer specialists, scientists or investors, most of them working backstage relentlessly. We will talk to those getting their hands dirty, those who don't shy away from the complexity, but see the opportunity to create lasting impact based on the newest advances in science and technology. My name is Thorsten Lambertus and I'm pleased to be your host for this episode today. It's three years ago in April 2018, we were back at my time at Fraunhofer, we were thinking about a new concept for a central tech transfer program, incubating more spin-offs from this big research organization here in Germany. And we did our research globally to understand where are maybe role models, good programs where we could look like, what are they doing right, uh, what can we learn from them, what can we build into our concept. And we also discovered the Runway Startup Postdocs program. And so we visited you uh, in New York, um, New York City, on this beautiful Roosevelt Island building. Um, and since then, I'm always observing you and your program, how you're making progress. And I'm very happy that today we can talk about exactly this. Uh, what is your journey? What is the journey of all the startups that you have supported? And uh, what have you come to learn um, after these four years that you are now the director of the Runway Startup Postdocs program so that our community out there can also learn from you, from the people you're working with, and maybe become better entrepreneurs or better company building, incubator builders out there. So thanks uh, in advance for, for sharing all your learnings with you uh, with us today. Well, thank you for your kind words. Uh, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, you were able to visit before and obviously that um, that you were able to to take in some of the work that we're doing. A large part of what we want is to for people to understand the methodology uh, and all of the good and the bad as well. So all of the crazy <laughs> stuff that we're doing uh, and learn from it. Right. So share the knowledge. Wonderful. So. Cornell Tech, this is kind of a joint venture between the Cornell University and Technion. Um, we had Ben Software who ran the Technion Tech Transfer for quite some uh, years here on the podcast as well. And so there's really two strong universities working together. So what are the origins of these corporations and what is the place, the position of the one-way startup postdocs in this constellation? Yeah. So, so first, let me let me take a, a step back and uh, and say that in the origin is the origin of Cornell Tech uh, was as a way of bringing a university, uh, uh, let's say, the power of a university into New York City for economic development and economic growth. So, Cornell Tech in itself was built as a way of helping people. Uh, create companies that would create jobs, right? So you can't hire everybody under the sun. Uh, and, uh, and the idea was to bring that academic power, but also to focus that academic power in entrepreneurship and economic and job growth. So Cornell Tech is the campus of Cornell University in New York City, in Manhattan. We're sitting here in Roosevelt Island. Uh, in addition to Cornell Tech, Cornell Tech is, again, just the campus of Cornell University. There is an additional institute called the Jacobs Technion Cornell Institute. And that is the formal collaboration. So not, not all the campuses, the collaboration, but that institute is uh, about 30% of the campus. So it's a big part of it. And that is the formal collaboration. So the question is why such an institute, right? What's the necessity of forming an institute and, and what does it do? Uh, and it does many things, but I think the main one is uh, it gives us the opportunity to experiment in things that universities are very bad at. Uh, and I'll give you a secret. Those problems that you were telling of uh, is difficult to do technology transfers. Uh, universities don't know how to do it. They, universities have a lot of technology that they don't know how to commercialize. We have it too. Cornell University has it. Technion has it. All universities have that problem. 
So the Jacobs Institute was created so that we would have a an avenue, an institute that would be a little bit of a uh, of a little island, but but within all of these academic uh, these academic institutions, but that would allow us to experiment, to do things that maybe help us figure out how to do better commercialization. And that's the objective of the, of the Jacobs Institute. So within those experiments, and we have done many, uh, and I have to say a lot of those have been a failure, but, but some of those have been a success. Um, uh, within those many experiments is the, the Runway Startup Postdoc program that has been a success. Uh, and, uh, and, and that has been uh, our way of, of really pushing the boundaries of uh, what we can do with commercialization. So what is it about? Why did we come to this idea of the of the runway program? Let's go back to this idea of experimenting. We needed to figure out how to do better commercialization from the academic environment. And the first thing that you should do is say, well, what do I have? What populations do I have inside of universities that are underserved? Right. That's a good way of experimenting, saying if I have a population that is underserved, can I build something to serve them the right way? And there was one population that came came afloat, and it was pretty obvious that it was being underserved, and is people that are just finishing their doctoral programs or that are postdocs, you know, young postdocs, that they have been doing their postdoc maybe for two or three years, you know, a few years. Why do we think that they're underserved? We, we went to them and we said, look, this these these people, these, these postdocs or young um, or young PhDs, they are very much involved in creation of technologies in universities. As a matter of fact, a lot of them are the creators of the technologies in universities. Uh, uh-huh. They they are the ones in the labs, they're the ones working with professors, they're the ones that are young and eager and you know, putting all of that that effort into doing that. But as they leave the, the that that PhD or as they're doing their postdoc, they're faced with uh, maybe just two paths. So the first one is, okay, you can do your postdoc and then really try to become a professor. Uh, there's a reality out there. There's not enough jobs for that in the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, we graduate too many PhDs, not enough academic jobs, uh, and, and thus simply there's just not enough job to jobs to do that. Uh, other people can go to industry, and uh, and that's fine. <clears throat> you know, that's one career path. Uh, but there's some that didn't really want to just go to industry. There's some that didn't want to be professors. There's some that wanted to be entrepreneurs. And they're kind of stuck in a place where they can't. Because if they try to be entrepreneurs for one or two years, that lineage that they have, that experience that they have in the academic environment, basically they go out, they, they do it on their own. And if they want to come back to academia, let's say that that fails because, hey, uh, startups fail, right? So if that fails, then uh, they wanted to come back to academia. Basically, uh, they say, well, for two years, you haven't done any research, so uh, you're not competitive in trying to get a professor job. Uh, Or they go to industry, and then to industry, they're always the technical people. Uh Our goal was to say, what about the people that want to be entrepreneurs? What about the people that want to be CEOs? And not all PhDs, have the capacity or the personality or the drive or the desire to be to be CEOs of their own companies, but some do. And that's what we recognize. That's the population that we recognize. And we said, can we serve them better? Can we figure out how to help them uh, the, the right way? Uh, and that's what the program is about, is to help these people figure out or give them the time to to figure out if they if they can work with an idea, become CEOs of their own company, and grow, without killing their connection to the academic environment. And so, if they fail, which again startups fail, that's normal. If they fail at this uh, at this entrepreneurship effort, they they can they they're still in academia, right? So they can continue. They can be professors. Uh-huh. They can uh, try to be in industry, but they 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 didn't disconnect from that lineage. And so we are de-risking it from them. And at the same time, we're giving them the training and curriculum and resources that they don't have because they've been, they've been focused five, six years, seven years on being very good technically, but 
we never told them on those years, well, you should also get all of these learnings on how to be an entrepreneur. So I see it as, as, as our fault, is the academic fault that we haven't told, that we, we haven't given them that knowledge. Uh, so we also give them a lot of training and curriculum and things that help them become those real entrepreneurs. It's a very hands-on program. Okay, this makes sense. Um, thank you for, for sharing the origins and the basics of the program, the reasoning behind why this was set up at all. Maybe before we jump into the program structure, and I have many questions around that, why are you running it? What motivated you? Uh, you are a nanoscale engineer by training to get on this path and be the director of that very program. Yes, so I'll, I'll tell you the, the the dirty little secret of this. Yes, thank you. I wanted to be a, a runway postdoc. That's uh, that's how I that's how I got to know it. Um, I I saw the program. The program was created by a Professor Atatmian called Uzi Dehan. Uh, Adam Schwartz, who was the first director of the Jacobs Institute, was very much involved uh, as well uh, as well as. The, the person that is now the director of driving Technion, Shuli Schwartz. So really the three of them have created this program. And I heard about it from a, uh, I heard about it from a, uh, from a postdoc that I, that I knew, you know, I, I, I met a postdoc at an event and he told me, Hey, there's this program at, at Cornell tech. And my first thought was, wow, this is, this is super interesting because that's exactly what I what I felt. Uh, no, I I have a PhD in nanoscale engineering. Mm -hmm. I'm that type of PhD that did not want to be a professor, that did not want to go to industry being a technical person, but wanted to be an entrepreneur. I never really felt that the university helped me. On the contrary, it felt that there was a lot of barriers, um, and and people were wonderful. It's just it's not about the people. It really is about the, you know, the just the system of the university that sometimes is not set up to to help entrepreneurship. And so I first heard about the program and I said, wow, this is great. Uh, maybe I can go and, and, and make a company, right? I already had made a company. I had finished, uh, uh, I was really wrapping up one of the companies that, that I had made and, and figure out, hey, I can, I can apply to this program. And as I was applying, they told me, well, it might take a little bit for them to reply because they're looking for a new director. Mm -hmm. and, and and that's kind of uh, that 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 was another light bulb coming in, uh, which was saying, "Look, there is. I have a lot of empathy for people that go down this path, and I think that that's that's very important because people that are trying to that are really technical, you know, PhD, not not just PhDs, but people that have all of this technical knowledge and they want to be entrepreneurs, they want to lead, they want to be CEOs." We are a weird bunch, you know. We are tribe. We uh, we we really are You're very rare species. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, but but rare. I mean, there's plenty of us, uh, but but still rare in in the whole context of of um, you know of all of those people sure. out there in the world. But uh, but definitely, you need to have a lot of empathy for the journey of someone that has been told for many, many years that they are, so like the epitome, the perfection of academia, right? This this path of you can be a professor and you have all of this knowledge and you, you have to publish and you have to go down the uh, the tenure track. And, and, and so we are, there's a particular interesting thing when all of that journey results in someone saying, but I don't want that. I want to be an entrepreneur. And I think that you need to be very, very aware of, of of how conflicting that is and have a lot of empathy for that. Uh, so when I saw the opportunity of being the, the director of the program, not only I saw it as a great opportunity to start working with amazing entrepreneurs, which it is, but also as an opportunity to to give back and to work with people and, and to to help them through this journey, which is really tough. Right. And and mm -hmm. basically, no. There's then there's a long story there, but uh, but I I applied. Uh, they they like me, and uh, and it seems that all of the right pieces fit together, and that's how I became director of the program. Okay, so you were never part of the program, actually. You directly no. took over the program. I directly just took over the program. Yes, from the previous director. Okay, and so one thing that 
That is very interesting. It's because you said that you knew you won't pursue the academia path, neither would you pursue the path to industry. When and how did you know that? Because I think many people in our community, they have the same struggle uh, or the same questions. Is there an entrepreneur inside me? Um, and maybe I don't know that entrepreneur, uh, but maybe it's just unrealistic that I become one. And so they never give it a try. When did you know, well, all these other paths, they're not for me? Yeah, it, it takes a lot of self-discovery. Uh, my mother was a professor and a researcher for 30 years. Uh, so I, I kind of already knew the path. Look, there is a path that is very rewarding, but at the same time, there's a lot of politics, there's a lot of complications. And I I, I saw it, this idea of publish or perish, of, uh, of being able to, to put a, a lot of knowledge out there, but not being applied necessarily anywhere. That wasn't appealing. I've, I've always been more practical. Uh, so I had that I, I had that experience because of my mother, but uh, I think that people, as they go through the academic environment, they notice. They notice that people basically just publish, publish, publish. That it becomes this thing where uh, it, it, it's a it's a just this race until you get tenure, and after you get tenure, everything changes, and people are disillusioned with that. So that's one side. On the industry path, uh, and maybe this will resonate with some of the people that that might be listening. I get very excited when I see the opportunity to build things and I get very so like blah or disillusion when everything is done. And that's just my personality. So I, yeah. Whenever I go to a large company and, and, and everybody's saying, oh, look at all of the things that we have and, and all these the structures and all the products that we created, I, I'm like, meh. You know, I, I don't get excited by that. It's kind of weird. This is my personality. It's already but done here. There's not that much yeah. to do. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but that's I love that. I remember distinctively coming for the first time to uh, to the U.S. to where I did my Ph.D. And there was this humongous uh, clean room that was empty, was absolutely empty. And obviously mm -hmm. people would go there and would say, what is this? This is empty. This is crazy. But I saw it as full of possibilities. Right. I saw the, the opposite reverse. Go. I was wow, I will get to see how this gets filled build completely. So I think that that's my my chip, right? So I see that too. And and it takes a lot of self-discovery, but I already know that that happens to me again and again and again, where I I see something that is not built and immediately I get attracted to, oh, I can build this. There's so much stuff to be done there. Well, on the other path, if it's a big company, no, it's not bad. But to me, it's just like, oh, okay, that's fine, <laughs> right? It doesn't excite me that much. And, and I fully understand that for me, it's all, always about building stuff up, what, what motivates me. And if there's something already there and you just need to manage it, uh, quote unquote, and uh, basically improve the performance of whatever it is by 5% every, every year, this is really, this is boring for me. Um, and so it takes this kind of nature, probably this cur curiosity and seeing the opportunities in an empty room, um, as you described it quite well right now. Um, yeah, yeah, Maybe and that, and that work is very important, right? So that so the people that do that work is very important, and uh, and there's lots of people that love that, right? So love that regularity, but that effort absolutely, of uh, yeah. But but at least myself and I, I feel the people around me in this tribe we're not like that. You know, we're more excited by I have no idea how to how to build this, but let's just go and try to figure it out. Yeah. Which brings me to the point: running a program means you need applicants. And for your program, because you were talking about this underserved population, how do you go about finding the right people? How do you go about finding the people that are like you, basically? Well, you go. <laughs> that is, uh, I had to travel a lot. And it's not unlike uh, customer discovery. I traveled to universities. I connected with people in universities. I uh, I went to as many labs as I could. I went to Reddit to find people. I went to LinkedIn to find people. I I just tried to to figure out where were those uh, PhDs and or early postdocs and what were they doing and and just uh, try to talk to them and listen to the stories. Uh, still to this day, it takes that. It takes a lot of effort into. Uh, not just doing information sessions, but I, I feel that the right way is to get to chat with people a little bit more one-to-one, -one, right? People, mm -hmm. uh, people are 
afraid at the beginning to telling you that they're frustrated. Uh, but that's exactly what I look for. Every time that I talk to, to someone and they tell me, oh, I'm so frustrated with this academic environment. I'm like, yes, this is my, <laughs> this is the person that I want. Right? So that's, uh, there, there are little markers like that, but that is, uh, uh, you know, and, and I have to do and I, a lot of the work that I did was just to go out there and, uh, uh, and travel. Uh, and, and meet people face to face. Obviously, during the pandemic has been a little bit more difficult and we try to find interesting ways. But I do feel that it's still very much a personal kind of um, a relationship that you need to build so that people understand and, uh, and, and come to you. So to, just to make that clear, the applicants can come from around the world. They are not part of Cornell Tech, neither are they part of Technion University. Well, they, they, they could, but everybody else could too, right? So they could be part yeah. of, of Cornell or Technion or any other university out there in the world. Yes. At the beginning, the program did focus, uh, so seven years ago, did focus more on Cornell and, and Technion. Uh, and uh, I uh, I also, you know, I'm, I'm honest that I do travel a lot to Israel and we always end up finding amazing people in Israel, not just at Technion, but there's... Uh, now, there's other universities, Hebrew University, Tel Aviv University is just an amazing place uh, for yeah, innovation. Definitely. So we always get a lot of people you know, from uh, that apply from Israel. But you're absolutely right. The program accepts anyone anywhere in the world that, that has done a PhD. What else are prerequisites for joining? And what's the value proposition? How do you pitch to them? Yeah, so the, the, you, you really don't need anything else. You need to have an idea. Uh, but even within the application process, we kind of already guide you on how to structure it. So even if you have an idea and you have nothing else, you've never put it on paper. A technical idea or a business idea? Just an idea on how to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really the key. I, I, we're not really focused on, okay, I have this technology and I need to do something with it. Oh, I, you know, I want to build a business that makes me a trillionaire. What we ask for, and this is clear in the application, is tell me a problem that you want to solve. And obviously, we want, we, we're looking for people that with their knowledge, with their skill, you know, obviously with the knowledge that they have um, from their PhD, they, they have the right tools to solve that problem. But that's what we want, people that, um, that recognize a problem and they're passionate about solving a problem. And what else does it take? Because uh, I can imagine there's many people applying for the program and there's maybe lots of frustrated engineers and researchers out there in the labs. How do you select among those that apply and say like, um, you have all you it, it takes to maybe become an entrepreneur at the end of the journey? Yeah, uh, so I think we, we try to recognize some, some traits, some, some particularities of people that we know uh, are going to be good entrepreneurs. I think the first one and, and the most obvious one right now is coachability. There's something about your personality where you need to be able to receive information, process it, and, and be able to say, okay, I can either change my behavior um, regarding this, with this information, uh, take it in and, and be able to, to make a result or be able to say, well, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna continue with my plan, but this is why. So so make a um, a very rational so like understanding of why. So coachability is really key. I think we we take a look at people and we try to understand uh, if they're coachable, if their personality is right. Again, not all PhDs have that coachability and that personality. That's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. But the ones that do, I think that that's that's the key. Then we also take a look at. Those are really the, the main things. Uh, we also take a look, of course, at academic excellence. So we want people that are excellent academically so that we can we have the best of both worlds. Uh, we have people that want to solve problems that are within their range of knowledge. Right. So if you if you uh, want to build a cybersecurity product and you've been working on cryptography forever, that makes sense, right? But if you want to build a fashion brand and you've been doing uh, material science, uh, you know, I I don't necessarily see the connection. You have to help me yeah. get there, right? So, uh, so we 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 need to figure that out. Um, and uh, yeah, so there needs to be that match. There needs to be the personality. Uh, and then there's another part that that has nothing to do with the entrepreneur, but we recognize that there also needs to be a good match for us to be able to help 
an entrepreneur. And that's key. We bring people that we know that we have mentors, we have people that they can connect, they can be part of our community. Um, because if I bring here someone, and I'll give you a great example. I, I had someone apply that was doing satellite technology. That's amazing, you know, excellent technically, excellent product, great, great entrepreneur. At Cornell Tech, we just don't have the capacity to do anything related to satellite technology. That's uh, at Cornell University, we do. So uh, so what, what I told mm -hmm. them is, look, the reality is that, yeah, you're a great personality, you're coachable, you have the knowledge, you have all of that, but we are not the right mentors for you. And we have to recognize that. Uh, so I put them in touch with other places at Cornell University and other places where they can get more help. So both is the... Can we help them the right way? Do we have the right tools? And also, do they have the right personality uh, and the right technical match for what they want to do, the problem that they want to solve? Okay. And I think when I look at your program, you chose deliberately not to follow a 12 weeks, one size fits all program, a typical accelerator model, but you built something that is more flexible. Could you outline what are the basic principles, the structure, the support, from um, inside the Runway Startup Postdocs program. Yes, and it comes to the other question that you asked, I had an answer is the value proposition. Uh, so exactly. the, the, the first part of the value proposition is uh, we hire you, we hire you, we hire the, the postdoc, uh, which means that this, this is a postdoctoral position. Uh, it's, it's uh, you become staff from Cornell University uh, and because you become staff, you have a salary, you have uh, uh, benefits, you have health insurance. Uh, so that's that's important. You, you need to have people that are not worried about uh, how they're going to eat. Um, that's not a good way of, of, of doing entrepreneurship. Believe me, I've been there where it's been really tough sometimes with money and uh, and you don't want people to to be thinking of that. So. So we give them salary and uh, and everything that entails. We we give them uh, money for the company, cash for the company too. That's another part of the value proposition. You have your What's salary, which is good. Uh, so uh, it could be de depending on the, we have two levels of salary, but uh, between uh, 40, 46,000 a year uh, for for the company, just as a as a check, basically. Mm -hmm. Look, you make a make an account. We give you that money, and you use that money to. Uh, to the things that you need to build a company. So that's sort of like the top number, 46,000. There's another um, alternative where we give you a little bit more salary, but we only give you 20,000 for the company. Uh, so some people take that. Uh, so that's the second value proposition, cash for the company. So so you can use it to, to build whatever you need to build. Um, the, the third big part of the value proposition is that as a postdoc, you will be working full time on building your own company. And that comes to the point where you're saying, it's not about doing a 12-week program. This is the issue with a lot of these acceleration programs. And, and even with programs that are wonderful, like i which I'm, a, I'm an instructor in, is mm -hmm. you can do this for eight weeks, but then after those eight weeks, like things drop, right? So you go back to reality and then things get to be complicated. Being an entrepreneur is not a part-time thing. It's not. So you need to be full-time doing what you need to be doing. And we give them the opportunity to do this full time up to two years. If I do my job correctly, it needs to be less than two years, right? But up to two years, full time working on their companies. They're not working under anyone. Uh, I'm the supervisor, but I'm not building their companies. They are working for themselves, building their own companies. And if you take a look at those two, that uh, those things, well, um, so there is salary, money for the company, the fact that they can do this full time, that this is their job to build their company. Um, and then a third part, which is a curriculum, we have a lot of mentoring and resources for them, uh, which are key to get them to make that, uh, that switch from the academic mindset to the entrepreneurship mindset. That's the other part of the value proposition. And what exactly are you teaching in that curriculum? What are the major benefits and key lessons for a researcher who wants to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, so we, we use uh, initially, as I think now, now it's become sort of the standard, the i methodology, which is uh, uh, sponsored by the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, we use that methodology. But we go beyond and, and we try to find... Um, a few areas where we know that these hyper-technical people uh, always suffer. So 
one of those is in understanding how to attack markets and how to make a plan for attacking different markets. Uh, this is not something iCore does. Um, and, and so there's a methodology called Where to Play uh, by a wonderful instruct, instructor, Sharon Tal Iskovitz. And uh, she comes here and, and, and really helps him understand, okay, what's the low-hanging fruit? What is the moonshot? How do I understand how to, how to attack markets in a systematic way? So I think that that's important because choosing the market is always a big issue for these entrepreneurs. So that's, that's one. The second one, and this one is key for me, I think, you know, I see it again and again, is decision-making. Hmm. When you are a PhD, you have a lot of information and it's mm -hmm. difficult to make decision. And if you're a PhD and now you're trying to be an entrepreneur, you're doubling the amount of information. And we see again and again, analysis paralysis. Uh, people have too much information and they don't know what to do with it and they become paralyzed. So having a, a way, a methodology for decision-making is key. Uh, we use something called the area method. There's um, uh, Cheryl Einhorn, who's a great author and professor, comes here and help, and, uh, and works with them. But I think that's key, decision-making and help them in, helping them get out of that analysis paralysis. The third one that we do is... Uh, uh, something that we call how to become irresistible or the irresistible training. Uh, that's taught by Larry Gold, who's an amazing entrepreneur. The idea is, as, as PhDs, they don't really sell themselves and, and they don't really understand how to speak. Oh, this is why what I'm building, it's amazing and it's irresistible and everybody's going to yes. want it. And you know what? That is necessary, right? So we are not necessarily born to be salespeople, but we can all learn how to talk about what we're doing in a, in a more interesting way. And, and we do need to train them on that. Um, and that might also take, for example, giving them lessons on how to be better public speakers because they don't necessarily are. Uh, if, if necessary, we, we bring an actor to help them <laughs> become better public speakers. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. That, and that is, that, that is quite normal that you are not necessarily, you, you might be very good at, at public speaking, for something really technical and feel very comfortable with that. But when you're pitching in front of ECs, that's not natural, right? So, and uh, there are people yeah. that might be natural, but these people are not. So, so being able to express yourself, to have a good semblance, to have a good voice and to become irresistible, that's great. Uh, there's another one on being compassionate leaders. Uh, we don't just want them to be leaders. We want them to be compassionate uh, mm -hmm. about what they're doing uh, and, and being able to be, uh, build uh, teams effectively. Uh, we we also work with them in, in special projects, depending on what they want, the, the, if it's uh, product design or marketing or maybe getting them to understand different industries. So, uh, But those are, I think those are the core right now of the methodology. Uh, no, there's a lot of hands-on. We, we recognize what they need and we go out there and find it. Uh, so there's nothing standard about what we're doing. And I think that that's a big part even though we, uh, there's some things that we recognize that, that, that are good. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of one-to-one -one, uh, realization of what is it that they need and how can we help them effectively with that. And I think that that's the key of the, pro of the curriculum. There's a lot, does make a lot of sense. And I love this approach of tailoring it to, to the individual because you're working with individuals basically, right? Yeah. And, and, and also, with, yeah, and we have to work with practitioners because I, this, even though we're in academia, you know, this is not something. It's not like it's not a year, like a semester-long class, right? So we, yeah. uh, Cornell does that, and they can they can also go to those classes, uh, obviously at Cornell Tech. But uh, we we need to give them just what they need at that point in time. So yeah, it becomes very one-to-one -one effort. There is people who would argue that it doesn't make sense to con convert researchers into entrepreneurs. And they would rather argue, let's bring in serial entrepreneurs, people who have done it before with more business savviness, and let's match them to the researchers. What do you think about this? Yeah, and, and that has been, I think, the traditional approach from, uh, from the university. What I find strange about that approach uh, is that in academia, we are always telling them, well, we are here to educate you. And then all of a sudden we tell these people, I'm not going to educate you on how to become a good CEO. I'm just going to put something there to do it for you. So that, that, that seems kind of weird to me. 
what we want to do is not necessarily look at the end at the end of the road of runway people might not be ceos of their companies they might be ctos and we have examples of that that's fine i don't think we're, we're not mandating that they have to be ceos mm-hmm. what we want is to educate them on what that means they need to have the experience so that they understand what that means if you have that experience and then you bring an experience in season ceo the, the, the entrepreneur, the PhD, is going to have a lot more appreciation for what this person is doing. He's going yes. to work much better with that, with that uh, CEO. He's going to understand what, you know, what, is, what are the complementary actions that they need to do. So that's, that's what I feel that is wrong. I mean, the, the, the approach of putting an experienced CEO is not bad, and, and it makes sense. Uh, what, what I do feel is that we... We need to have the entrepreneur understand what that means, what the role is, because otherwise it, it might just become either that the entrepreneur doesn't know how to work with the CEO, which, you know, why would they know how to work with the CEO? They don't know what the CEO is doing. Uh, that's one. Or the other one is they might feel uh, that they have been stolen out of their idea or, or, or out of their mm-hmm. capacity to build something. And I have seen that too, where an entrepreneur... Uh, you know, one of these PhDs, and they have been working five, six years in a technology. So imagine working six years in a technology and having the personality to become the CEO and saying, I can do this, I can build this, I can be the leader. And all of a sudden they tell you, nope, someone else is going to come and be on top of you. That's demoralizing. And 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 I I see it. Not in every case, but I do see it. And I think if you give them the chance of doing it, then they can make the decision whether they want to be CEO or not. And that just works better in the long run. Very clear position. So for two years program maximum, right? Mm -hmm. How do you keep up the pressure? It's easy for a 12 weeks acceleration program, then you have a very deadline that is always in front of you and you know, 12 weeks and then the clock is ticking. But for a two years program, how do you keep pressure high and the, the speed of developing. This is where having a cohort is important. That's a great question because if you are doing this with one person uh, or, or let's say individually with two people, it might be very difficult to keep that pressure off for a whole year. You're absolutely right. But what happens if you put them in a cohort of people, five, six, seven people, then Immediately, as they're doing updates and they're working together, they start seeing, oh, wait a minute, this other company already had sales. Oh, wait a minute, this other company already had investment. Oh, wait a minute, these guys are growing and hiring people. And and that that becomes a huge pressure uh, where they start seeing all of the other people around them mm-hmm. also you know, having the same struggles and helping each other, but at the same time progressing very fast. And, and it's this thing where the whole group is pushing uh, each other to be better and to build better. Uh, and so that's that's the way that we keep the pressure up. If we have all, of, and we do that, we do scrums every week with all of our companies. Uh, we do meetings together. Uh, they, they update each other. They help each other. We have you know, Slack channels and all that. But that, that moment where they are all together and you start realizing, uh, oh, this company started at the same time that I did, or really close by, and now they're having, you know, they're having investment and they're having, uh, and they're hiring people, and I'm not there yet, and why I'm not there yet, and what am I doing wrong, and so that's mm-hmm. that's what keeps a lot of the pressure up. And on your website, it says you also provide emotional support. What are the major emotional <laughs> challenges for those entrepreneurs? Yeah, the emotional support is basically me with a box of tissues. Yeah, this has happened. We sit down in a room crying about some stuff. So uh, it's, it's hard. You know, building building this is hard. Um, look, I, I think uh, being around people that are going through your same struggle uh, is important. Uh, we try to do social activities again COVID really put a wrench into all of that but being social being able to do dinners we're going to have a dinner uh this uh this week on sunday uh with everybody together uh being able to sit down and face to face say no let's just sit down to whatever have coffee um it's 
obviously, you know, the university also has mental health resources as a, you know, because you're a staff member, uh, you have those resources and you have, we have trainings for them. Um, and so the university, the university makes a wonderful effort of having those, those mental health resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do feel that having someone that has gone through this, that instead of telling you, oh, you know, why are you doing this and why did you fail? Basically just sit down with you and say, I get it. You know, I, this is just. Yeah, I, I get it when it's tough. I think that's that's what people need, and that's what people appreciate. Speaking about failure, when you look back at all the people and entrepreneurs that you have supported, which are the ones that make it, and which are the ones that fail, and why? So, <laughs> we, we, I think I'm in a I'm in a very good place too because uh, if if I define failure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Not being able to give these people the opportunity to to be entrepreneurs and to do what they want, right? Then I haven't failed. <laughs> we Very we true. bring everybody and we, we we give them the opportunity to become great entrepreneurs. Uh, so so that is kind of a, 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 a I don't know if it's a trick that I tell myself, but uh, <laughs> but but I think it's not a failure to give them the opportunity to to become great great entrepreneurs. Um, but then let's talk about the companies that or the entrepreneurs that don't end up making a company, right? So, yes. uh, what? Why do they fail? Um, I think the the ones that fail uh, most likely and in the most cases is because uh, really there was not a press the pressing need that they thought that they that they have. And all these people have been developing a lot of technologies, and we try to switch it from technology push from, oh, I build this to, okay, what does the customer need? Um, and and they just never found a, a pressing need. It seemed like that. It seemed that there was an interesting pressing need, but but there wasn't. Uh, and there's, uh, there's a lot of interesting technologies out there that are solving problems that are not pressing or urgent or, or really valuable needs. Uh, so so that, that I feel is the main failure mode. Uh, and uh, and for these entrepreneurs, and they end up going to either industry or or uh, or or coming back to academia, and now looking for value somewhere else. So my hope is also mm-hmm. that if they didn't build a company right now, they will build a company at some point in time again, uh, finding value. Um, but that's really the main failure point. The ones that grow very fast, very very fast, is where they found something that was extremely valuable where the combination of the technical knowledge that they have, and particularly in digital technologies, just allow them to, to just solve a problem that was either unsolvable or urgent on, or, or you know, it was, it was really something that, um, uh, that was very, very much needed. And, and it's kind of interesting. It becomes obvious after the fact, uh, <laughs> after you do it. And, and in hindsight, it's always obvious. Problem. Yeah, of course, it's always obvious. Uh, but 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 I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, a couple of the ones that we have. I think that they're good examples. So the largest company mm-hmm. that we have uh, is Nanit. Um, it's a baby monitor that that has computer vision technology, uh, and the value proposition for that baby monitor is it's helping both parents and children sleep better, and that is a huge problem, right? When you're a, a parent and you just have a baby, sleep is the number one concern. You're not sleeping well. The baby's not sleeping well. It's yeah, really meant to I can be tell you. taxing. Yeah, there we go, right? So you you know it. So, uh, and, and, and you have a camera in your room that is doing nothing. That basically is just out there looking at the baby and you're not sleeping. And so, and, and so this is a simple proposition is, can we help parents get better sleep? Can we help, obviously, babies also get better sleep, mm-hmm. uh, but with something that you're already doing? So the, the, the issue is not making a, a new camera, is the fact that with that camera right now, you can use a lot of digital tools to help you understand better the progression of sleep, how to train yourself to sleep better, how you train your baby to sleep better. And, and so that's a huge need. And, and every single parent knows this. And, and so this company has grown like crazy because of that. There was value. There's a need. It becomes obvious, but it wasn't obvious, right? So that's uh, that. That's one of the great examples. I have another one, uh, which is a company called Biosha. I really, really like. They they uh, are the ones that have uh, have sequenced. You know, they 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 
they worked on, on rapid sequencing. You know, they know the DNA of a lot of pathogens, but they really sequenced from the space station all the way down to the subway of New York. But their goal and their value was always, can we very, very quickly figure out what is this infection? What is this uh, bacteria? What is this virus? So that we can help anyone uh, uh, well, obviously, clean better, you know, so that we, we, we mm -hmm. can help uh, uh, hospitals control infections. And at this point in time, what happened when the pandemic hit? Who, who did the CDC call? You know, who, who was the first line of defense? They were, right? Mm -hmm. Immediately is, okay, what do we have? What is the variant that we have? What, what, what are we dealing with and how do we kill it? And so people that are building something like that after the fact right now is pretty obvious. Oh yeah, we need people that can recognize virus and bacteria in a millisecond or you know, I, uh, maybe it doesn't take them a millisecond, right? But very fast mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and, and tell what it is and be able to, to clean it very fast. Uh, look, we need that. It's, now is pretty obvious. Uh, so, but it wasn't when they were building it. So again, a company that I feel is wonderful. I feel what they're building is great and obviously servicing. So though, that's really the key of, uh, I, I think really good companies. Mm -hmm. Great examples, and thank you for sharing them. And so, in order to to solve those problems, it takes R and D. It takes building up intellectual property. And maybe a final aspect: there's always the discussion. What is the deal around tech transfer for the spin-off? How do you go about that? How how do you solve it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is the main karma of universities. Uh, it's not 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 an easy problem to solve. Um, so, look, the uh, I, I think the the approach that that we're taking uh, this is where the Jacobs Institute comes in as a as a very good figure to help us. Uh, to, to help us experiment because it's very difficult to change licensing and IP and all of that within the, 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 the realms of, of like the normal progression, the, the normal exactly. work of, of, of a big university. Um, and, and so what we did with the Jacobs Institute was to tell Cornell, look, we're going to build our own IP, but let us experiment in the way that we want to license it. And, and the, the thing that we did that was a little bit different was instead of asking for royalties and, and having to do all of this negotiation of future royalties and uh, oh, how much money are you going to earn in five years, which by the way, no one knows, right? So this mm -hmm. is, there's no sure. way of knowing, right? So so whatever you're going to put on an Excel spreadsheet is going to be wrong because we don't know. So, so, yeah. so instead <laughs> of having to go through all of that, right? And, and, and through, through figuring our royalties and all that stuff, Let's come back to a very simple premise is we're bringing you here. You're building this IP. You're creating something. And so because you created this, then that means that you are the best vehicle for commercializing that technology. Mm -hmm. So let's just recognize that if, if you as a person, that person that we bring here, uh, you create the IP here. And by the way, that's that's our model. I mean, we, we've had a couple of cases where we license technologies, but for the most part, they come here and they create new intellectual property here. We filed for mm -hmm. 35 patents. We already have 15 granted. So they come here to create their own IP. So this is new IP that they're creating. And all that we're saying is you are the best vehicle of that IP because you created it. So and, and we're helping you commercialize it. So you get a license for this. Exclusive, perpetual, transferable is your license. It has no royalties, right? Because we don't want to burden you with that. That is, that is just money that we would take out of the company. It makes no sense. But what do we get? We get equity in the company. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we have a, and we have a standard deal for equity in the company. Uh, it's around six percent. Uh, and uh, and I, there's also a story there that I, I think that is extremely generous. Right. So it, it, it most likely should yeah. be more. Uh, but uh, but the reality is that let's, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on the model, the model that I think or the experiment that we did was instead of focusing on how much royalties can I get out of this, the focus was on you are the steward and the vehicle for commercializing, go commercialize it. And we are your partners and we'll get equity in your company. We're co-owners of your company and, and let's work uh, with that angle. And I think that that is, that has been what's revolutionary for me about this program. The fact that we have that, that, that way of looking at things which makes it so that I license every technology, every single technology license, because there's always an owner, someone, someone that's commercializing it. 
But at the same time, I'm not burdening the company. I'm not doing long license negotiations. And what mm -hmm. I am having is equity and stake in these companies that are growing very fast. Thus, the university is getting, uh, well, I mean, eventually, obviously, it takes a little while for this to become liquid, but the university is going to uh, get a return on investment. And that's also what we're seeing in terms of, uh, you know, we are, uh, if right now we were to liquidate all of the holdings that we have, we would be positive. We would have uh, about 40% more of the money that we put in. And, and again, we're not trying to be the best VCs in the world. That's not our goal. Our goal is to be the yeah, ones that true. are helping entrepreneurs, uh, 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 these young PhDs, explore this career path. So, but, but it works. It's still positive outcome for the university, even financially. Um, and I think that's the, that's a big change. And I, I would hope that all uh, there are a lot of other universities that would take this example. And I'm not asking them to do exactly the same thing, but do think of simplifying uh, and, and saying, this is really worth it going through these whole license negotiations with, at the end of the day, what we want to be is partners of these people as they build this as a company. That's, I, I think, think this is a the great final statement at the end of this episode. Um, and it seems like this is really working. You can show that your model is working and and it's tailored to this very specific target group. It's designed by an engineer for engineers. And this is what I really loved about the conversation today. Yeah, so, and and look, it's not, I, even though we're focused on, on PhDs and, and yes, engineer and particularly people that are building digital technologies, I do see it as, as something that can be expanded. And this is our goal. You know, we come now to the eighth year uh, and maybe I'll, 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 you know, I'll end with this is we come to the eighth year of, of doing this program and we, we have a methodology that we've proven that it works. We know that we can train entrepreneurs. We know that there's this population of people that need this and, and there's a real value. Again, we come to value right. as a real value with a real need. So our goal right now is to scale and grow. Right. And and there's a couple of ways of doing it. One is obviously to <laughs> to just uh, put a bunch of money, which we want to do, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to raise more money. We're going to put more money into this and hire more people. But the other one, which I feel it's it's uh, it's also um, uh, not doable, is to share this all over the world. So I'm going to end uh, saying by anyone that is hearing this in any university system out there, uh, come talk to me. Uh, come talk to us. And I, I want you to learn this methodology and I want you to apply it. And I don't want anything out of it. The, we want this to be impactful everywhere in the world. We already had two places in the world, one in the Netherlands and one in Canada, where this mm -hmm. is being replicated and they're having wonderful um, results with it. And I want this to become a learning experience for everybody out there in the world. Our goal is to share the knowledge, that way being impactful and help other people help new entrepreneurs. Perfect. And I hope that we are a good channel for the right people to listen to what you just said and uh, hope that people reach out to you and will replicate together with you this very model. Thank you so much. Perfect. Thank you for the chat. Um, I will keep observing you, your progress, and uh, thank you for sharing all your learnings so frankly today. Thank you, Fernando. Thank you, Thorsten. Bye-bye.